You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Nick Jenthakis, who is using Jekyll and Ruby to run a podcast site called Running in Production. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. Thanks a lot for having me on. Anytime. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your site? Sure. So my name is Nick Jenthakis, and I've been a freelance developer for quite some time now. And I want to say about five or six years ago, I started a blog as well as created some video courses around building and employing web applications, as well as starting a YouTube channel. And around two years ago, I think it was October 2019, I started runninginproduction.com, which is a podcast site where I talk to someone new every week about how they build and deploy their web applications. So the basic idea is, you know, I want to get an end-to-end story about how they're using something from dev to prod. And I was noticing when I was Googling around for things like, you know, sites using Flask in production or Rails in production or whatever, it was very hard to get a really good story about how these specific companies or organizations or individuals are using this tech stack. Because oftentimes you would get like a Quora post or maybe a Stack Overflow answer where, you know, it's like three sentences or maybe a couple paragraphs about like, yes, this company is using whatever tech in production, but it doesn't really go over the details, right? Because there's a really big difference between a company going all in with a tech stack versus just like, okay, yeah, maybe they're using Flask or something like that, but it's like for a hundred line Python script, essentially, that's like running the tiniest thing like internally, right? But they'll still list like using Flask as a part of their tech stack. So yeah, I thought it would be really cool to talk to someone new just to get an idea of like how they're actually using uh, these technologies and then going over, you know, not super deep in the wood stuff, but still like understanding like what libraries they're using, how they're using them, and more importantly, like why they're using them, right? Because it's always interesting to get that perspective from folks. So yeah, that's basically where we're at with uh, the show here. And this is episode 100. Ah, very nice. Congratulations on 100 episodes. So when it comes to putting together the show, are you the sole developer on building the site and recording everything? Or do you have a small team around this one? So right now, it is actually just me. So there's no company backing this one. Don't even have any sponsors on the show at the moment. And uh, yeah, so every episode, I am doing the scheduling, recording, editing, and then putting together the show notes, and then also uh, building the actual site itself. Ah, interesting. So if you had to guess, like how long do you think it takes to put an episode up end to end? Ah, that's a good question. And it really depends, I guess, on how hard it is to find a specific guest. And also it just depends on how the episode goes because editing sometimes is really fast, but it can also be pretty long. But to chunk it out, there is a couple of stages. And the first stage is actually finding a guest. Like how do I find someone to come on the show? Uh, and that's usually done a couple different ways. So I either reach out to someone individually, like over email, or I try to post on specific community sites. Like if that programming language has a, an official forum or maybe a subreddit or something like that, I'll post something there. I know when I posted on the Django subreddit, there was like 43 or 44 folks who filled out the form to be a guest. And like, that was really nice because there was a hundred percent success ratio on that one where like everyone who filled out the form and wanted to be on ended up actually recording uh, the show. And then there was like, you know, basically like 40 plus episodes in a row almost where it was just Django. And basically the whole entire podcast was like running Django in production. And uh, that's basically why there's so many Django episodes. Not that that's a bad thing. I actually think it's a great thing. I wish there was that turnaround for every single tech stock I reached out to. Um, but you know, it is what it is in some cases, you know, certain times uh, frameworks are just not as receptive to having a bigger community who wants to actually be on something like a podcast. So, you know, even if you don't find too many, too many episodes for a specific episode, it's not necessarily because the framework or tech stack is dying. It's just that, uh, yeah, people just didn't, didn't want to be on the show for whatever reasons. Uh, definitely no harm with that. 
But as for how long this all takes, yeah, with the scheduling stuff, you know, maybe I make a, a post on Reddit somewhere or an email out. It's really not too bad. Uh, maybe that's like half an hour a week or something like that. I try to just send as many invites as I can and then sort of schedule things like naturally as folks reply. But yeah, then it comes down to actually doing the recording. So when it comes to that, the guest and I will both hop on a Zoom call where we can talk in real time, but we both record each track of ourselves locally. So uh, I happen to use Audacity here for that one. And it's also what I recommend to guests because, you know, despite having some licensing issues and them being acquired, it really is a stable tool and it's cross-platform, open source, et cetera, et cetera. It hasn't failed yet in a hundred episodes. So it works now. And really, honestly, I don't know of a better alternative that's actually super stable and rock solid and has a really good track record. So the idea there, though, is uh, we want to remove any type of uh, network, not latency, but like, you know, audio going over a network is going to add some weird effects. Basically, you get like weird garbly sounds or maybe some like clicking sounds and things like that. It's just a lot nicer to record things locally because then we get a very high level track and we can just use Zoom to talk locally together or not locally together, but, you know, Zoom for talking in real time. And then at the very end of the show, they just export a WAV file out from Audacity or whatever tool that they use. I've had some folks use GarageBand because they're already doing podcasts and stuff, so that's no problem. But yeah, I take their WAV file, then I take my WAV file, and I import that into a tool called DaVinci Resolve, which is a video editing program, which is also really good for editing audio as well. And then it comes down to the editing chunk or the editing stage of this process where, you know, I import those WAV files and, uh, you know, I line them up and I try to try to make the show the best I can in terms of uh, quality, right? So if I can remove a lot of ums and ahs, and you know, sometimes I actually like to keep a lot of them in there because it just seems more natural because that's how folks, folks talk. But you know, that's an all a manual process where I remove things like that. I remove, um, you know, long pauses or, you know, once in a while, like this show isn't scripted at all, but it is pre-recorded. So, you know, if someone messes up, like if I ask a question in a stupid way, maybe, or uh, the person responds in maybe, I don't want to say like a convoluted way, but they decide that they want to recite or something. We kind of do that. That actually doesn't ha happen that much. Honestly, most of the, the shows that I've put out there, there's very, very minor editing in terms of re-saying things because someone messed up. But yeah, this editing process takes quite some time. I guess like, let's just say for argument's sake, an episode is one hour long. It will actually take me maybe like an hour and 15 minutes to do the editing. And the only reason I can do it so fast like that is because I'm actually playing back the track at two times speed in DaVinci Resolve. So yeah, I've edited so many videos of my own, like over 500 of them. I'm very used to doing editing. I have like hotkeys and workflows down really well for that one. And I'm really used to listening to things at 2x speed. So I can actually edit at 2x speed, but it ends up actually being about the duration of the real life time for the episode. So if it's an hour episode, you know, it takes me a little bit longer than an hour to do the editing. And throughout that editing process, you know, cutting out things, uh, you know, shuffling around whatever needs to be shuffled around. I am also creating all of those show notes that you see on the runninginproduction.com site. So, you know, listing all the, all the tags for the tech stacks and those bullet points for the timestamps so you can jump to a specific point in the show based on like a little one sentence preview there. Uh, yeah, all that stuff takes uh, quite some time. End to end, it's hard to say like exactly how long it takes. Inputting the things into the website is actually probably the most painless part of it because yeah, it's just like writing one or, you know, one sentence, uh, remarks for every timestamp for every couple of minutes. It's not really a big deal. It's just a markdown file. But yeah, end to end, I want to say maybe like four or five hours, I guess, maybe for one episode, like fully end to end all in, like, you know, not giving uh, like a low uh, assumption of how long things take. So I know that's a long answer, but yeah, it's about uh, where we're at here. Okay. Yeah. That sounds like quite the process. Maybe uh, one day you'll be able to outsource some of that stuff or have you thought about that?
yeah, yeah, I would love to at least outsource the editing part. Like, I, I would never outsource the recording part because, like, the show is basically, uh, well, and I want to say it's me. It's, all, it's actually all about the guests, but I feel like it is technically my show, right? Like, I would, I would never want to outsource myself from, from the recording part. But yeah, the editing stuff is, um, that's also like a very personal thing. But yeah, things got to the point where I can actually get sponsors on the show and, and pay to get someone to do the editing because editing is going to probably be like two to three hundred dollars an episode. Uh, even like getting transcripts, like good ones for an hour, hour and a half show is going to probably be like 50 or $60 per episode. And, you know, if, if you're not getting any income from the show, like we're starting to talk about $400 plus a week, like $1,600 a month. Like suddenly we're talking about like an entire rent money uh, just to get the podcast automated a bit. Maybe I'll get there at one point. So we'll have to see about that one. Okay. So you said this show has been running since October, what was it? 2019. Yep. That's the one. So if you don't mind sharing, like how many people actually listen to each episode? So funny enough, like that's actually a really interesting question because uh, I happen to not use any third-party podcast platform and I just host everything on DigitalOcean. And it's actually pretty tricky to get an exact, like how many people listen to the show because one, uh, someone could just hang on the page for a couple of seconds, like start playing an episode and just leave after like 10 seconds, but they can also download the episode and listen to a full hour of it. There's no way for me to track like someone listening to the show offline. And then there's also uh, dozens or potentially hundreds of different podcast platforms like iTunes and Spotify and you know Google's podcast thing. And there's so many other ones as well. There's some buttons there on the runningandproduction.com site above each episode if you click into one. Uh, you know That's only just like the more popular ones, but yeah, there's way, way, way more. And what's interesting though is they all, well, not all of them, but a lot of them just hook into iTunes. So it's like if you make your, well, maybe we can get into details about that later, but yeah. so. The idea there is like it actually is very hard to track like exact downloads and, and listens. But um, based on just looking at some Nginx logs and removing bot entries and just picking out things that look like human results, I would say there's about maybe 400 uh, downloads per episode at this point in time. Hopefully that grows in time. But yeah, I'm not really here for the views or whatever. I kind of just do it because I like it. Although I will say it is kind of a grind uh, because yeah, the editing part just it kills me inside. Even though I had a lot of experience, it still is like just something to know that it is something you need to do like every week. It's like, okay, well, it's 8 p.m. You're done with work, you're done with dinner, and now it's like the rest of the night is editing the podcast or something like that. But yeah, you know, it's not too bad. I'm not trying to make it sound like I don't like doing this. Uh, I still do like doing this and that's why I'm doing it, right? <laughs> but yeah, uh, about 400, I would say, per, for, per episode right now. Cool. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about uh, using Jekyll and Ruby specifically. Do you want to go over your motivations for choosing this? Yeah. So when it comes to Jekyll, Jekyll is just one of many different static site generators. That's the technical term for this one. Uh, there's other ones too, like Hugo is one that's written in Go, and there's a whole bunch of other ones as well. And when it came to using Jekyll, I actually used Jekyll for my personal site, which is nickgenotakis.com, and all of the landing pages for all of my courses as well. And uh, I figured, well, I've got all this experience with Jekyll and it actually works quite well for me, even on my personal blog that has, I don't know, 370 or so blog posts and there's like another 300 drafts that are unpublished. Yeah, Jekyll has actually been quite nice there. It only takes about, I don't know, 15 seconds to build my personal site's entire blog, but I can also write and get real-time previews where things get updated in less than like a second or two. Now, what's really interesting though about the running and production site is uh, I wrote a couple of template loops, like Liquid is the templating language for Jekyll, by the way, and maybe we'll get into that a little bit more later too. But uh, yeah, the, the, the podcast site actually takes a little bit longer to build. It, it actually takes almost two minutes to build. I can still get the real-time preview of about like a second or two when I'm actually writing with Jekyll's incremental mode, which 
people also get into. But yeah, it's not the fastest thing, but it actually works quite well. And my favorite part of using Dracul, because I did look into maybe switching to Hugo or switching to um, you know something else. But I think if I were to switch to anything, it would be Hugo. But issue I found there is one, the Go templating language for doing you know HTML-based templates was... I don't know, it's not like it's crazy, but it's like, it's really verbose and different looking. And to me, it's not intuitive. I'm sure I would learn it very well if I were just working with it in my day to day, but it didn't feel like it was worth learning a whole entire new system just for the podcast site. And what's, what's really interesting too about Jekyll is it is really, really extensible in a very easy way. So there's basically a plugins folder. And by the way, Jekyll is written in Ruby and you don't really need to write any Ruby at all to actually use Jekyll. It's basically just, you know, you get the liquid templating engine, you can put your CSS and JavaScript, do whatever you like, but it's mainly just working with those liquid templating files. But you can also develop custom plugins. And since Ruby is a scripting language, you don't need to like compile a new binary or do anything crazy. You just put these plugins in a specific format in a specific directory and you are good to go. And I actually do have a couple of these custom plugins on the site. For example, when it comes to clicking any external links. So if you go to runningandproduction.com and you go into any podcast episode and go to the show notes, there's usually a lot of reference links or like library links to different um, locations, right? These are third-party URLs on the internet, not controlled by my website. And what I wanted to have happen was anytime I go to an external site, so like example.com or google.com or whatever, you know, something that's not the, the main podcast site, I wanted that to open up in a new browser tab automatically. And that's using, you know, target equals underscore blank. Also, you do like rel no opener. I think modern browsers do that by default now, but in any case, what I really wanted to do was write a Jekyll plugin that will scan through all of the show notes, basically going through a specific location in the show notes, just the header that says, uh, you know, libraries or references. And then it will go through all the links there. And if they're external links, which most of them are, but not all of them, it will just go and add the target equals blank as well as the rel no opener to all those links automatically. So then me as the end user in all of these separate uh, episodes, which by the way are just markdown files, this is how Jekyll works. Each episode is just a markdown file. Then yeah, I can just don't even need to do anything special. No fancy HTML attributes. I just write my standard markdown link, which is, you know, bracket, put in the link and bracket and there we go. Or maybe I'll use square brackets or parentheses if I want to have uh, the label or the, you know, the actual name of the link different than the URL. But yeah, it's a really nice plugin. And I don't know how many lines of code it was. It's actually all open source on github.com slash nickjj slash running in production. I'll, I'll leave a link to that one in the show notes. But yeah, it's like, I don't even think it's like 50 lines of code. It's basically just using the Nokogiri uh, library to parse out the specific headers that I want, get the links there and go through them and just modify you know the actual link there to put in those things. And yeah, there's also another plugin that I use which is uh, like an audio seeking plugin. So when it comes to the show notes, there are uh, timestamps, right? That go from, let's say, I don't know, like six minutes, like 35 seconds. And then there's like some explanation of what happens there. And you can actually click that six minutes, 35 seconds, and the audio player is gonna jump to that specific point in time. Um, that's also done with a plugin where same exact strategy as adding the underscore blank. But in this case, it just goes through all the specific like topics include section, and it just adds a specific data attribute to each of those links. And then it also adds a specific class to those links. And those data attributes and classes are actually read by JavaScript client side that will then go and be like, okay, cool. Like when I click, you know, the 635 or whatever, then it's going to go and update the audio player. So that's how all that comes together. Again, that one is also super basic. It's not even like a hundred lines of code. Yeah. So it's really nice for me as an end user of like 
the person contributing to the site because when I edit the show notes, all I have to do is just use a regular markdown list like a dash. And then I just put in, you know, six colon 35 dash dash and then uh, whatever explanation that I want and it does the rest. So, you know, maybe it's this extra parsing that requires uh, there to be a little bit more extra time for the podcast, but I don't really mind it because uh, in real time when I'm writing with Jekyll's incremental mode, which by the way is a way to very quickly get feedback on what you're writing without having to recompile the whole site. It's a very seamless experience. I can just be writing in Vim in my code editor and then to the right of it or left of it, whatever, my browser will just auto update on its own using live reload. So you get all that baked in with Jekyll. Yeah, it's a really nice system in my opinion for writing a blog, podcast site, you know, any type of uh, static content. So that was probably a little bit more long-winded than you expected, but um, that's the motivation for me to use Jekyll, right? It's the plugin system and everything just works. It's not too slow. And uh, yeah, it's a really solid platform for at least what I'm using it for here for a blog that has a couple hundred uh, posts as well as this podcast, which now has over a uh, hundred episodes. Yeah, really cool. It's interesting because yeah, I feel like, you know, the static site generator world, it's always like, well, should I use Jekyll or should I use Hugo or should I use Gatsby? And there's like five other ones. And it just feels like Everyone is off in their own camps using whatever specific tool. There doesn't seem to be a single winner. Yeah, that's super interesting. I guess one takeaway for me, it's like, and this is a really hard thing to do. It's like sometimes you don't really need to pay attention to what the community is doing because there's a lot of different folks on their own doing whatever, like happily using Jekyll, happily using Hugo. Like there doesn't need to be a specific winner. I think we can just all use the tools that we like using and uh, be productive with that. And what's really interesting about that one, like, that's kind of also my takeaway from the podcast as well, because uh, I don't have an exact count of how many different specific tech stacks are being used, but I think there's like over 150 distinct like technologies being used. And yeah, it's all over the place, right? There's a lot of Django episodes, but that's not because Django is like the most popular web framework ever. It just so happens it was like really well uh, received when it comes to being on the show, right? But yeah, you could be using Django, Laravel, Flask, Rails, uh, Phoenix, Node, like Go. All of these languages and frameworks are uh, really, really good. And yeah, that's definitely one takeaway for me in general And is that you don't need to use what everyone else thinks is the best thing because the best thing is really, it's super personal, right? It's like you really need to like the tools that you're using to feel that you are doing the right thing. Because if you're constantly in like a state of turmoil internally where you're like, oh, well, I'm going to start with this tech stack, but oh, everyone else says I should be using that. You're never going to have the motivation or the discipline to keep continuing developing what you're developing if you're constantly second guessing like what, what tools they're using. So yeah, I know we're not going over like best tip stuff here or you didn't ask this specifically, but I really do feel super strongly about that and that, yeah, you should really just pick the tools that you like because any modern tech stack nowadays is going to be very likely well enough to develop most types of web applications and not have to worry about things like performance or server costs or anything like that. Because yeah, it's actually crazy, right? It's like you can just throw up a server on DigitalOcean or Linode or wherever you like, like any VPS that gives you root access. And yeah, you could put uh, basically any modern web framework, doesn't even need to be a static site, throw that up on like a $20 a month server and just handle like a million page uh, views a month with most like SaaS app styles of apps, right? Unless you're doing something way different than a typical like GitHub style application. Yeah, it's just going to work out for you pretty well. So yeah, that's my take on, on tech stacks for now or yeah, I'm not too worried about that type of thing anymore, but used to be for quite some time. Yeah, that's very well put. And funny enough, that's actually what I think as well. So yeah, thanks for sharing that one. Now on the topic of Jekyll, you mentioned using Liquid, which what you said was a templating language. So do you want to maybe go into more detail about that and like how that might differ from, 
you know, maybe using an API backend with a lot of JavaScript. And speaking of JavaScript, like, is there even any JavaScript on your site besides the audio player? Maybe we can get into some details about the front end. Yeah, so is a very popular Ruby templating language. And I think it's even been ported to a couple of other programming languages by now. But yeah, it's just a way for you to basically write your HTML server side. But instead of writing raw HTML tags, which it does support, by the way, you can, you know, sprinkle in some dynamic stuff like if conditions and for loops and uh, yeah, just like reading variables that come from Jekyll and stuff like that. It's very similar to using something like ERB with Rails, or if you're using Flask, maybe the Jinja templating language. You know, it's familiar in the sense that it's the same type of concept. And uh, yeah, there's no like API backend or anything like that because Jekyll itself is a static site generator. And uh, that just means that it takes all of this like liquid tags and you know everything else that you have, your plugins, et cetera, and it is going to just spit out static HTML, CSS, JavaScript, images, fonts, like whatever you happen to need to load your site. And then from there, you actually don't need Jekyll on your server or any static site generator. You just serve it directly using Nginx or you know whatever web server that you like, or maybe you you know upload them to S3 and then put like a CDN in front of that. Like it's really your call at that point. But uh, yeah, in terms of like JavaScript on the site, there really isn't that much at all. Um, I'm just using the custom audio player, which by the way was awesome because I actually had a issue open on GitHub to create a custom audio player and. You know, it was just hanging there and I wrote out like, you know, maybe a specification of what I would like to see in a custom player. And I just tagged it with help wanted. And after, I don't know, maybe hmm, six, eight, nine months, I want to say maybe after the show was released, someone actually took a shot at creating a custom audio player. And that was really awesome because, you know, other than that one issue I created, I wasn't really actively like, you know, please make a custom audio player for my site. Like I just left it there and someone took an initiative to basically put a proof of concept up on code pen it looked really good from my point of view so i was like yeah let's do this and you know after i don't know maybe a couple of weeks of back and forth where you know he would make some commits and i would review them and offer some suggestions you know back and forth etc it ended up being uh, live on the site and yeah that audio player i really like it because the default audio player that comes with browsers specifically is pretty weak they're much different in every browser they look a lot different they all have different behavior you can't really do things like adjust playback speed. It's a little bit hard to figure out how to download an episode and they're not like too well when it comes to being responsive and then, yeah, just a lot of inconsistencies. And uh, the custom audio player, you know, it's not the best audio player in the world, but it hits all the marks that I that I think I care about. And it, when I say I, I don't mean like in a greedy sense because like you, anyone listening, if you're a developer, you know, we all share very similar traits. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to listening to anything, unless it's music, or like some form of entertainment or something like that. Like I am almost always listening to anything at 2x speed. That could be a podcast, that can be any informative uh, YouTube video, anything. Yeah, I mean, I don't listen to like movies and stuff at two times speed, um, but I actually do listen to a lot of them at 1 to 1.25 speed. But anyways, that's like an aside. But yeah, like for me, being able to very quickly change the playback speed, very, very important. I also wanted it to be very, very easy to Take a moment of where you are in the actual podcast. Let's say you're at like, you know, the 38 minute mark. I just want you to be able to click a button really easy to be able to copy that link or, you know, click that button, which is going to copy that link. And then you can just paste it to someone which just uses like, you know, pound and then uh, 38 minutes in the URL or whatever. So that when they click the link and load it, it brings them right to that point in the podcast. So I wanted to make it very easy just to share uh, where you are in the podcast instead of just linking them directly to like the zero minute mark and then, you know, having to send in a separate message. By the way, just go to like, you know, minute 38. Like, why not just build that in? So yeah, the podcast player does that. 
Uh, it also handles volumes and yeah, seems to work pretty well, I guess, on mobile. Uh, I happen to not have a smartphone, but we did test it in mobile environments. Uh, when I say we, I mean the person who opened the PR as well as uh, a couple of uh, my buddies checked it out too. But yeah, that's basically it. I mean, JavaScript wise beyond that, I can't think of anything else I am using. I know when it comes to displaying the bullets of the tech choices on the actual listing of the podcast. So if you go to runninginproduction.com slash podcast, there are three columns of bullets that just list out every single technology. And that I'm just using CSS there, like uh, grid columns to make them be three columns on a wide display, but then just one column on a mobile display and two columns, I think on about the iPad view. Basically it's like always readable and that was super easy. That was basically just a single CSS selector. I actually did a video about that one on my YouTube channel. I'll link to that one in uh, the show notes, but yeah, I'm just trying to think really hard about any other JavaScript and I really don't think I have any other, any other at all. Huh, interesting. Yeah, it's super cool to think like you can actually put together an entire podcast site and not have to write too much JavaScript. Now, speaking of JavaScript, though, you mentioned that custom player. Do you happen to know like how many lines of code that was to develop? And, you know, are you using any plugins or any libraries for that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I actually don't know exactly how long it is. I think it's maybe like 200 lines of code, give or take. I'm just like trying to Rewind my brain like a year and a half, like looking at the pull request, I think is about that. It's also vanilla JavaScript, so it's not using any libraries like jQuery or anything like that to actually make it work, which is kind of nice. It's not like I have anything against jQuery. I actually think it's uh, a really good library for what it is, but yeah, the person who opened the PR wanted to create a vanilla one because yeah, they just figured it was the most portable and it's the most flexible so that other people can use it if they decide to use it on their site. So yeah, since this whole entire site is open source and MIT licensed, uh, you are free to actually take that audio player and use it where you'd like. Just make sure you keep our names in the MIT copyright. But yeah, that's about it for the JavaScript. There's actually no processing being done with Webpack or anything like that because I am using a Jekyll plugin called Jekyll Assets. And uh, this one just gives you a special liquid tag that you can use that will allow you to define your you know, CSS and JavaScript and uh, images and whatnot. And it will actually MD5 tag all of them you know, that's the idea of putting like a hash in the file name so that you on your end with using a web server of choice like Nginx or uh, maybe a CDN, you can decide to cache these assets forever because if they change in the future, then the MD5 is gonna change. And then that just gives you a really nice way to invalidate your cache without having to do anything fancy because you'll get a brand new file name with new contents every time it gets updated. So that is just a, a Jekyll plugin. It does all the bundling uh, for you. So yeah, there's no, no super complication to get all this up and running. So it was pretty nice. So maybe now we can talk a little bit more about the rest of your tech stack. So when it comes to developing this site with Jekyll, do you happen to run that in Docker? Also, when it comes to production or using things like Nginx or is there any database or anything like that? Yeah, good question. So in development, I actually just have Ruby installed directly within WSL2 on my Windows box. I'm actually not running this in Docker. Now, I remember years ago, I tried to get Jekyll running in Docker, but there was always an issue around either a live reload not working, which I think by now should be fixed between WSL2 and iNotify events being uh, compatible with Docker desktop and Windows. Yeah, actually I'm thinking that it shouldn't be an issue now, but I still happen just to have Ruby installed directly because it's not too big of a deal on my end here. Uh, I share that same Ruby installation for all of my static sites. so nickjonatakis.com, runninginproduction.com, as well as uh, all my courses as well. Yeah, it's just using all the same Jekyll setup and I am using 
CH Ruby to change between uh, Ruby versions. But yeah, I haven't updated Ruby on my DevBacks in a while. I think I'm using 3.01 or something like that. But yeah, it's all working. And then for production, yeah, I am just using Nginx uh, for the actual web server. Then yeah, I'm just serving a static directory that Jekyll produces. And getting that static directory on the server, maybe we can talk about that later. That's basically uh, my deploy process. But yeah, there is no database. There's no Postgres or Redis or anything like that. It's just static files being generated and then being served on the server. I happen to use Let's Encrypt for my SSL certs using acme.sh there instead of certbot. But uh, yeah, that, that is about it for there when it comes to uh, the tech stack. Cool. So what about like external SaaS tools? Do you use anything like that? Anything that's hooked up to the site? No, no, it's all just a uh, static site. I am using Google Analytics. Uh, that's the only SaaS tool, I guess, if you want to even see that. And you know, it's not because I'm like an evil empire trying to like capitalize on your data. It's mainly just, I just want to see like how many folks are using the site and Google Analytics will give me like a monthly report. Honestly, I don't even log into it. And really, honestly, I probably should just replace it with maybe uh, plausible analytics or something else because yeah, I'm really not just going in there and doing a lot of like cross-examination of traffic and stuff like that. So it's very little value for me at the moment, but I figure anyways, like, most developers, well, I don't want to say most, but a lot of developers, I was just running Adblock anyway, so it's not even like that's going to count against um, a Google Analytics or even plausible analytics or any analytics that's client side that involves executing JavaScript because, yeah, Adblock is just going to block that one. But yeah, there's no other external SaaS services or anything like that. Cool. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean about that. I'm always on the fence too. It's like, should I use Google Analytics in my next project? I don't know. Uh, but maybe that's a discussion for another time. But maybe now we can talk a little bit about where you have all of this hosted. Yeah, so I have everything hosted on DigitalOcean. So they're not like a sponsor of the show here, but I have been using them for, I don't know, I want to say six or seven years. It was really shortly after they came out. And yeah, they were just one of the first hosts to have an SSD. So I gave them a shot and you know, you really can't argue with five bucks a month to get like one CPU core and one gig of memory. And yeah, it's been running quite nicely. So I actually run the entire runningandproduction.com site as well as my personal blog, as well as all of the landing pages for all of my courses. So dive into docker.com and build a SaaS app of fast.com. You know, these are all being hosted from the same Nginx server running on that one $5 a month server. And yeah, there's no uh, CDN in front of that, because I know DigitalOcean has DigitalOcean spaces, you know, for serving some of the assets, at least like JavaScript and CSS, but I'm not using that at the moment. Very cool. Yeah, it's nice to see that uh, you can get all of that up and running just for five bucks a month. We, I don't think we had a chance to go over this, but do you mind sharing some like traffic numbers that you get to that server? I know you're hosting a whole bunch of different sites on it, but, you know, maybe you can give the combined traffic or maybe just for running in production. Yeah, no problem. So I don't have exact numbers, right? I didn't look this stuff up. But the last time I checked, I was getting around 60 to 70,000 monthly visitors for nickjonatakis.com. Then for running in production, you know, if I'm getting about 400 downloads per episode, they're not always coming through my site, right? Because a lot of them are going through iTunes or whatever podcast player that you'd like. So the website traffic for running in production.com is actually pretty low. Um, I think that is probably only going to be maybe uh, right a couple couple hundred per month, maybe a couple thousand max. I've actually don't really even log into analytics to check. And for the course site, uh, yeah, again, we're talking like thousands per month there. It's it's not substantial. But when it comes to hosting the MP3 file, that is pretty interesting because the MP3, and by the way, the MP3 is for each episode, each podcast episode, that is actually being served directly from my DigitalOcean server. And 
but that is actually being pulled from each individual podcast platform. Now, all these podcast platforms, they work a little bit different, like iTunes and Spotify, etc. Some of them will actually download your MP3 file, and then they will play it back from their end. And this way, you know, your MP3 file is not getting hit, but they give you the analytics on their end, like Spotify, etc. But I don't know the details for all the different podcast platforms, like which ones actually download your MP3 versus just like streaming it for uh, their actual player. But yeah, there's, you know, 400 downloads per episode, roughly usually within like the first week of the episode coming out. So again, don't have exact numbers, but, you know, probably thousands of uh, MP3s being streamed and downloaded on a monthly basis. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool to see that server hold up. Do you happen to know like what the server load is on that? Yeah, so the last time I checked, uh, server load is usually just humming along at like 2 to 3% CPU load. And the memory, I don't think I'm even budging it. It's something at like, I don't know, 25 or 30%. Nginx is one of those tools where it is usually, well, almost always like the most efficient part of my stack. Like it is so ridiculously efficient and uh, just stable. Like it just sits there happily serving as many, basically as many requests that you can throw at it. And uh, yeah, it doesn't throw errors. Um, it's super, super solid. Even once in a while, like some of the episodes, I forget which one. Yeah, they've been on like the front page of Hacker News or at least one of my blog, blog posts for nickjohnattackers.com. And again, it's like the server is like instead of 2%, it's at like 4.5%. It's crazy at how efficient Nginx is. And yeah, I'm really happy tools like that exist. Yeah, no, for sure. When it comes to Nginx, it is a great tool. Now, when it comes to that server, do you want to go over what distro of Linux that you're using? Sure. So I happen to be running... Uh, the latest version of Debian, so the latest stable version of Debian. Uh, right now, that is Bullseye, Debian 11. But in the past, it was Debian 10 and then Debian 9. But yeah, I just do an upgrade on the server there. Yeah, and I also have unattended upgrades turned on, except for doing the auto-reboot, because it is just hosted on one box. And what's really nice about the static site approach is, you know, to deploy, all I need to do is put files in a specific directory. I don't need to restart or reload Nginx or anything like that. So every time I deploy a new episode, then there is zero downtime because Nginx just picks up the new files and it's served on the next request. And yeah, it's all good. But yeah, latest version of Debian on those boxes. Very cool. Is there a reason why you went with Debian instead of Ubuntu? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, usually I kind of bounce between both distros. So I mean, Ubuntu still is based on Debian and Usually it really just comes down to when in time am I actually setting up the server. So for example, if Debian Bullseye just comes out, like let's say, I don't know, two weeks ago, right? Timing doesn't matter that much. Then I would probably use uh, Debian Bullseye setting up my server because like it just came out. It's very stable. You know, it's Debian. So you really can't go too wrong there. But if it's been a while for uh, a Debian release, like over a year or something like that, and like the next LTS version of Ubuntu comes out, like let's say, you know, 20.04 or something like that, then chances are I'll just choose uh, that latest LTS version of Ubuntu. Yeah, in my opinion, they're both very, very good distros and uh, I don't have an issue using either one of them. Ah, very cool. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Debian as well. Now, speaking of the server here and maybe jumping between Debian and Ubuntu, did you set all of this up by hand by like SSHing into the servers, like following tutorials, or did you use some type of uh, configuration management tools like Ansible, et cetera? Yeah, good question. So I've been using Ansible for, I want to say like seven or eight years. Uh, I took a long journey down the, I don't know, quote unquote DevOps experience, right? I've done a lot of setting up servers over the years and it started by doing them by hand, but eventually over time, 
uh, I decided to transition into the wonderful world of configuration management. And I forget the exact years of these things. Maybe it was like 2013, something like that. I actually started using Chef because at the time I was mainly working with Ruby on Rails and, you know, Ruby was my go-to language and, you know, Chef is based on Ruby. So I figured that would be a great fit. And uh, I used Chef for a while, but uh, I don't know. I don't want to call it out to say it is a bad tool, but because it's not at all. But for me, and again, this goes back to like personal choices, personal things, like I just couldn't really get Chef to work. I mean, it worked in the sense that like functionally I was able to set up the servers, but it was just like, it felt like a jumbled mess in my head. And it was like hard to maintain. And, you know, I was probably doing it wrong, but for me, it just didn't feel like a good fit. Uh, so I eventually ended up discovering Ansible and Ansible is uh, based on Python, but in your day-to-day, -day, you're basically writing just YAML code most of the time, like 99% of the time. Uh, actually, in fact, I think for me, it's been 100% of the time because I don't recall having to write any custom Python code for Ansible. But anyways, and I guess it's not fair, but for me, using Ansible just felt amazing. Uh, it just felt like it clicked with my brain. I can write a ton of Ansible YAML without having to look at the docs. Like, it just feels like it was made for me. Um, there are some downsides to Ansible. It's a little bit slow, especially, it, it, you know, if you need to run a couple hundred tasks on a server because each individual, individual task is being run over in a separate SSH connection. But it is a small price to pay. Uh, I'd rather have the convenience of being able to work with something that I'm comfortable using and know it really, really well, and it just meshes with my brain to maybe have to wait two minutes for, you know, 100 tasks to run instead of maybe, you know, a minute, 20 seconds with something else. But yeah, when it comes to Ansible, the whole entire server is set up using that. That's everything from setting up things like a deploy user, uh, locking down SSH, like setting up firewall rules, configuring Nginx, getting it all set up with Let's Encrypt. I'm trying to think what else is on that, on that server. But I think that's the main stuff. I mean, I have like, like log rotation is set up using systemd and journaldd. Well, that's good to go. Uh, there is a swap file on the server. But all these like things that I'm throwing out are individual Ansible roles that I have set up so that when it comes time to actually uh, set the server up from scratch, I can just run one single Ansible playbook that puts all of that together and it will just make the server be the state of my configuration files. And if minor, minor little things change over time, like maybe uh, I add a custom Nginx location because I want to set up like a some redirect that I don't want to do in Jekyll, then it's just modifying my Ansible configuration to add that, rerunning it, and then like 30 seconds later, it's totally live on the site. Or, yeah, well, it is live on the site. I was going to say, or like on a staging server, but honestly, I don't have a staging server. Um, if I'm going to be modifying really like low-level system stuff that I'm not maybe comfortable in doing, then I would just spin up a local VM that's a replica of production, like same operating system and everything. And I just do stuff there, but I haven't done that in a really long time. Uh, one of the nice things about Debian and Ubuntu is they tend to be really, 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 really stable. So I haven't had to make a system change in a really, really long time. I do occasionally add Nginx rules for server-side redirects and stuff like that. But yeah, those uh, are really not big of a deal because the Ansible role that I have set up for Nginx, it will actually run a test on your Nginx config to at least make sure it's syntactically valid before it tries to apply it. So it, you know, even if I'm not testing Nginx specifically, if the config file were busted, then that task would fail, Nginx wouldn't get reloaded, and like live traffic is still being served. So yeah, that's basically how we deal with that one. Yeah, very cool. So I'm a big fan of Ansible as well. Really happy to hear that you're using it there on the site. Now, earlier you mentioned uh, you do just copy files over from your dev box onto the server. Do you want to go over like what your deploy process looks like for the running and production site? Sure. So it's actually super basic, not as automated as you would think, but automated enough to where it, it works very well for what I do. I do have the repo set up on GitHub, but 
pushing code to GitHub actually doesn't deploy the site. And that could be something I could change pretty easily, but I'm just not too concerned about it right now. All I do is I have an Ansible role for rsync where all I just say uh, at the Ansible configuration level is, hey, by the way, on my dev box, go ahead and run the Jekyll build command and then just go ahead and rsync everything over to the server. And rsync is like a really, really efficient way of copying files from one location to another. You can do you know, server to server, server to your dev box, dev box to the server, whatever. Um, but the TLDR is it's very similar to the SCP command, like securely transferring files. But rsync is super efficient in that it is not going to send over files that didn't change. So on the podcast site, you know, I might have 100 episodes and like 20 interviews and let's just say like 30 assorted assets like CSS and JavaScript. You know, if none of that stuff changes and all I change is a single like HTML file for a new episode and maybe like the index page or something like that, then just those two or three files are going to be transferred over. And rsync is, is really nice for that because uh, deploying that part is very, very fast. So it only takes less than a second to rsync over the files after it's done building. It's a build process that takes a little bit longer, like two minutes. But again, I'm just running the command and I can go AFK and it's done when it's done. So commands like that typically don't fail. And if they do fail, then it's going to fail on my dev box before it gets to the server. So nothing is going to be uh, negatively affected there. But yeah, once the files get transferred over to the server, then Nginx uh, is just going to be immediately ready to go. Like they're live on the site, no downtime, and it's good to go. But after I do that, then what I do is I actually go to the website and uh, I just make sure links work. Uh, I could technically automate that, but that's not too big of a deal. Uh, it's usually just clicking like five or six links, a couple of references, et cetera, make sure the guest primary link works. And, you know, I'll kind of just spot check the audio a little bit. Like I don't really spend a ton amount of time here, but I'll click a couple of my show notes uh, timestamps just to see if they lead to the right part. Like, you know, six minute, 35 second mark, whatever I click on there, I want to make sure it jumps to 635. And when I actually click play, then, you know, it's not like maybe three seconds too early or late because, you know, humans make mistakes during the editing process. Sometimes, you know, you think it's at like, you know, 18 colon uh, 20, like 18 minute, 20 second mark, but you actually put in like, you know, uh, let's see, maybe like 19 colon 20 and you make a typo. So you're like a minute off. That stuff happens once in a while, but uh, yeah, not a big deal. But yeah, going back to that, once uh, the spot check is good and everything looks nice, then I actually commit the code, which usually, you know, just adding the new file, any other associated files like the user's avatar, and I uh, push it up to GitHub. And then, uh, yeah, shortly after that, I just message the guests, let them know that their site's live. If they want to share it, feel free to do so. Thank them for being on the show. And uh, yeah, we go from there. And then it's live, tested, and it is all good. By the way, that also reminds me of uh, some little things that I've built to help me automate what I can automate and try to like, I don't want to say like, because I don't have like a specific CI server, but I do have tests that I run to make sure that I avoid silly errors. And what I mean by silly errors are like, the way I have things broken out on the site is you can tag a podcast episode in many different ways. So if we're an episode about Flask, I might tag it Flask, Python, you know, maybe DigitalOcean, like, or here's a better example, like this episode itself, like, I don't know what the exact tags will be yet, but it's probably going to be you know, Jekyll, Ruby, DigitalOcean, Nginx, Let's Encrypt, uh, Debian, like all these tags, right? Um, but it's very easy to accidentally screw up these tags, especially if I'm adding new ones on the fly because like a new technology uh, was introduced by that episode. So each tag is in its own file and that file has specific HTML or YAML attributes because Jekyll has this thing called front matter, uh, not important for now, but you know, there's basically uh, like the URL, the title, the meta description, the tag name, so I wrote a little shell script that goes over all of these tags 
and then loops over all the episodes. And it just makes sure that, you know, every tag has a uh, tag name, a URL, a title, a description, like it's part of the, uh, the tag layout because Jekyll supports another thing called layouts where you can have different types of layouts. Imagine like, you know, any web framework basically has this in its templating language where uh, you might want to have a layout for your main site, like maybe a layout for your admin section, maybe a separate layout for your login screen. Um, but yeah, tags have their own layout. But yeah, that's basically it. So that shell script, is it just uses uh, like the diff tool as well as sed and grep and cut and a couple other tools. It's all open source for you to check it out. And it just makes sure all these things line up. Uh, there's also another script that I wrote to really help me automate not making mistakes with how long each episode is, as well as how big it is in bytes. Because one thing we didn't get a chance to talk about was dealing with RSS feeds, because this is really important when it comes to podcasts. And the RSS feed needs to be in a very specific format, usually defined by iTunes protocols, because a lot of other platforms pull off of that. But a couple of the properties that need to be in there is related to how long is the episode in terms of like one hour colon zero zero minutes colon zero zero seconds, like written out like that. And then also how big is the file on disk and bytes? And it used to be really, really, really annoying for me to figure out how long an episode is as well as how big it is because I'd have to click through windows and go to like, you know, find my podcast directory, go into like the assets directory for podcast, right click the file, go to details and then get the duration and then get the size and bytes and copy paste it and do that like twice because one for the duration, one for the size. And before you know it, it's like really, really tedious steps. So I ended up writing a shell script uh, or was it a Python script? Mm, I don't, I don't remember, but let me see actually. Yeah. So it is, yeah, a shell script that just basically goes through all of this and it will get the specific episode on disc, find out its duration using FFmpeg, and then it'll actually get the size using uh, the word count tool, which by the way, all this is open source. You can check it out. I've actually done a video about this one. So I'll, I'll leave a link to, link to this one in the show notes, but long story short, I can just run basically podcast details, put in an episode number, and it is going to update that episode's markdown file to have all this information in there so that it is all fully automated. So yeah, you know, that's not really part of CI or just like deploy process, but it is something really important that makes my life a lot easier to deal with uh, getting everything in order for each episode, making sure all the numbers line up and everything like that. Yeah, but as for deploying, it was just rsyncing over to the server using Ansible. And once it's there, then it's live on the site. I don't run any type of like GitHub actions or anything like that. I just run a local test script to do a check on those tags. Uh, that's all set up and uh, yeah, seems to work well. Haven't really had any issues with that one. I kind of do like the idea of being able to get push my code separately from being live on the site because I do like to do that one manual check live before it's commit to make sure the links work and then I commit it and push it. Cause I, I, you know, it could work the other way around where I commit it, push it, and then GitHub Actions will actually like rsync the files over with Red Ansible, it's not important, but it also have to like build the Jekyll site and stuff. Uh, since it's open source, like that would work because I don't have to worry about like build minutes and things like that. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe one day I'll go down that route. One benefit of doing that would be, I guess, uh, I could actually deploy my site on the road using, you know, maybe uh, a different laptop that might not have the whole Ruby environment set up. But for me, that's like the exception. So if I'm only traveling maybe once or twice a year, it's not too big of a deal just to move over my whole Jekyll environment onto my Chromebook that happens to be running Linux and yeah, just deploy from there directly. Again, you know, it's trying to do things that just scale for me. If this were a team effort where there were like multiple developers or things like that, then yeah, CI would be absolutely essential. But since I'm not using CI, this is how everything is set up. Very cool. Yeah, it sounds like you have a good setup just for yourself. Also, on the topic of deployment, like what is it like for deploying secrets or are there even any secrets that you need to worry about? 
Yeah, so in this case with Jekyll, there are no secrets that get transferred over to the server. Uh, the only type of secret here would be my SSH key. That's a combination of my uh, public key as well as my private key. But that is only necessary to connect to my DigitalOcean box. There's no uh, secrets beyond that. It's also kind of nice to have just that on my dev box and not have to worry about uh, you know putting a separate SSH key pair up on GitHub Actions to deploy to the server. You know, it's all just local to my dev box there. Ah, yeah, that makes total sense. So when it comes to planning for disasters or unexpected events, like do you, is there anything that you happen to back up or, you know, how does that work? Yeah, so as for the code itself, it is sitting on my dev box within WSL2 on my SSD. So that's one location of where the code exists. Then I also have a USB drive, like one of those Western Digital, whatever, whatever. It's like a one terabyte drive, I think a passport or something like that. So my code gets backed up to there at least once a day. Then I also have the code pushed up to GitHub. So yeah, it is in three locations. So I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that level of backup. Although technically two of them are in the same location. You know, they say that you should have three backups all in three different locations. So I guess technically maybe I could push it up to something like Dropbox or Google Drive or something else. But yeah, I don't, I don't bother with that. I'm pretty comfortable with just being on my dev box, the Passport USB as well as uh, GitHub. And then for the actual uh, site itself, it's only pushed up to that one DigitalOcean server, but that site that's being pushed up, there's no like user-generated files there. It's all coming from running a Jekyll build. So if I run a Jekyll build on my dev box, it's going to produce the same outcome as what's on the server. So as long as the code is up on GitHub, I can basically pull that down and uh, it will give me the same results as of what's on the server right now. Now, there is one exception to that though, because you know how it is with uh, Git, right? You don't want to really have gigantic files in your repo. So I actually don't upload all of those MP3 files to GitHub, um, or it's you know it's Git ignored in my Git repo. So they just get uh, just sent over through the Ansible rsync process there directly from my dev box to the server. And the reason there, yeah, it's just to avoid having a monstrous size Git repo. It didn't really seem that beneficial to have them because each episode is you know an hour plus worth of audio. So it's like what thirty to I don't know, 50 or 60 megs per episode, and you have 100 of them, that's going to be hundreds of megs of files in a Git repo. Just didn't seem like a good idea. But as of backups there for the MP3s, yeah, those are backed up on my local USB drive as well as two drives in my computer. It's on an SSD as well as an internal hard drive where I keep all the raw files for the WAV files, MP3s, all my video files, all that stuff, some other data. Yeah, it's all there just sitting in a backup. I really should put that on a different box or a different location, but I don't want to jinx myself to say that I should do it and then things are going to fail right before I do it. But so far, so good. Uh, the backup has been working. Yeah, I mean, realistically, that seems pretty reasonable. Now, when it comes to other unexpected things like, you know, uh, potential downtime or getting alarms and alerting, do you have any of that set up? Yeah, so on DigitalOcean, uh, on every server that you create, you can actually get free alerting as well as free monitoring. So they have a very basic uh, chart that comes up where you can see the CPU and memory load and disk and I think even network. And it's like a moving chart that goes back, I think, one day or something like that or a couple days. I don't know. It's been a while since I looked at it. But that gives you very, very basic monitoring where you can just you know log into your DO dashboard, go to your server, and check it out. But for alerting, they also have another thing where... You can actually get some information about your server, like the CPU load or the memory or the disk space, and you can have yourself get alerted if certain criteria are met. For example, if the CPU load is over you know, 80% for five minutes, or maybe your disk is almost full, you can actually get an email from DigitalOcean uh, automatically just by setting that up in the DO dashboard for that server under alerting. I forget the exact terminology, but it's very easy and it's free. It's part of what you get. 
Uh, I feel like I'm doing a sales pitch for DL, but yeah, I've been really happy using them and they're really fair and uh, yeah, good support, good alerting stuff. I, I love those alerts. It really helps me sleep at night knowing that, you know, I'm just not going to wake up two years from now and be out of disk space because my my drive is full. And that's things that have bit me in the past before. But now, uh, yeah, I have those alerts set up to where my disk is never going to get full without me getting an alarm first. And when I get the alarm, it's preventative. It's like reactive or proactive, I guess, is, is the way to put that one. You know, I, I can actually address the problem before it becomes a problem or a downtime event. And yeah, that's really important for me. So yeah, I have all of that hooked up. I also have uh, Uptime Robot hooked up using their free plan on a whole bunch of different sites that I have. And that one will actually ping the homepage or a health check page and uh, just let me know if it's not returning back a 200. There have been times in the past where DigitalOcean at the data center level went out, like, I don't know when it was, sometime in maybe August or July 2021. Uh, you know, they went down for a couple minutes in their New York City 3 data center, which is where all of my sites are. And it was funny, uh, funny in a bad way, I guess, that I just went to my email and there was like 15 uptime robot notifications being like, by the way, running in production is down and Nick Genetakis is down and all every core sites are down, by the way. And uh, yeah, but at that point, at least I know that Uptime Robot is working because I haven't gotten a notification from them for like literally like years, like years on some of those sites because the Uptime was just uh, really fantastic from DigitalOcean. So yeah, all that set up, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely helps me sleep at night knowing those things are set up. So highly recommend to anyone listening to uh, set those up. Yeah, that's very well put. Having that alerting in place is uh, definitely a time saver. Now, speaking of like potential best tips, like what are some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building out the site? Yeah, that's a really good question. Maybe we can just rewind back to earlier in the episode where, yeah, just be happy with the tools that you're using. You don't need to use the, you know, whatever the community hotness is based on Hacker News or whatever site that you happen to frequent for these sorts of things. You know, there's nothing wrong with using Jekyll, nothing wrong with using Rails or Flask or any other framework. Like these are all really, really good tools. And, uh, you can get a lot accomplished with them and you can have very fast page loads, response times, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's nothing stopping you from a $20 a month server being able to serve like 99% of your sites under hundred milliseconds using almost any modern tech stack for a lot of applications. So yeah, I would say keep it simple. Try not to go crazy, uh, making things complicated when you don't have to. I know there's things like Kubernetes and whatever, but uh, for, for a static site here, running it on Kubernetes, in my opinion, isn't really necessary. Uh, if I ever get to the point where the server is not performing the way it should be, I would probably just throw like a Cloudflare CDN in front of that one and call it a day, maybe bump up the server if I have to. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely reasons to use things that are more complicated. And for me, it always has been around when it's actually a problem, then do the thing. Like right now, I'm doing some client work where we're transitioning from having a whole bunch of different individual EC2 instances managed by Ansible to a Kubernetes cluster to run like six or seven different services. There's a team of 15 developers. Like it makes sense for them to use Kubernetes there. But for me, for like the static sites and stuff like that, like my blog and the running in production site, just keeping it super simple. Uh, I love the idea that uh, less is more in this case, right? It, it's really just Nginx that I need to worry about being up and running. And, you know, if there's any tool in the world, like Nginx and like Redis or whatever, or like two tools that I'm not using Redis here, it's just another example of like a high quality tool. Like I trust them. I trust them so much and they never let me down. So yeah, keep it really as simple as you can and uh, just go from there. Yeah, that is really well put. And Nick, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, no problem. Really happy to be on. Thanks again for having me. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, so my primary site is nickjanetakis.com. That's N-I-C-K-J-A-N-E-T-A-K-I-S.com. 
that has uh, links to all of my courses about Flask and Docker and soon to be a course on deploying web applications. And in addition to that, my Twitter is just at Nick Genetakis and GitHub profile is actually Nick JJ. But yeah, those are my main sites there. Everything about me could be found there. I also have a YouTube channel, which is just Nick Genetakis. You can find that on my main site in the about page in the bottom of the page there if you want to check that one out. I do upload uh, one video a week there about random dev environment and application building and deploying and basically everything about being a freelance developer there focused more on like follow along live demo techie stuff, not so much just like full head videos just going over theory stuff. So yeah, I think that is about it on that. Sounds good. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop links to all that in the show notes. And on that note to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.